chapter 3. Those of you that have been with us, you know we just finished a study on the book of 1 Peter. My intention over the next couple weeks or so, two to three weeks, is for us to be in John chapter 3 before we go into our next big study, which likely will be back into the book of Genesis, picking up in chapter 12. But in these weeks in between, I want us to spend some time in this crucial chapter of Scripture considering the new birth. Over the years, I have had an increasing burden for the mission field in which the Lord has placed me, which is the American Bible Belt. We all live here. We understand that there is a difference between true Christianity and cultural Christianity. And I think we understand that there are some who would profess to be Christians and believe like we do, who do not yet truly know the Lord. That is the reality of living in an area where Christianity has been for many years so dominant. I don't begrudge the fact that Christianity has been dominant in this area. I think there is a, a measure of God's grace in that. But I am deeply concerned about the Christian culture in this part of our country. I am deeply concerned and convinced that as a church that is striving to be faithful, evangelism for a church where we are begins in the pews. It begins within the assembly on Sunday. It does not just begin out there. I never, you, you know that many of you know this about me, I never come to a, an opportunity to preach on the assumption that everybody in the room is a Christian because I don't know. And one of the ways that we can address that issue and constantly evaluate our own hearts is to come back to Scripture and to consider what the Bible has to say, what Jesus has to say about what a Christian life looks like, what a new heart looks like. And at the center of that is the concept of the new birth, or being born again, or true conversion, or regeneration, or whatever other theological term or description you want to use for it. I want us to spend the next couple weeks considering what it is and what it means for us. The doctrine of regeneration, or the new birth, is one of the most central doctrines of the Christian faith. Without it, we don't have a Christian faith. And yet, it is also one of the most misunderstood and misapplied concepts. These words from Jesus' own mouth, you must be born again, are some of the most crucial words he ever said. And yet, they are also some of the most neglected, even among many who profess to be Christians. We need to come back often to the Bible's teaching on the new birth. It is here that we continue to learn about the reality of our own sin and the nature of our sin and the reality and the nature of God's grace. It is here that we find a solid basis for examining our own hearts and finding true assurance of our salvation. 
not according to our own works or ideas or some circumstance that we've experienced in the past, but according to God's word as he has revealed it to us and according to his grace alone. And so we're seeking over the next few weeks to soak our minds in the study of the new birth. And our focus for that is the teaching of Jesus himself. There are other passages we could go to. We could do a long study on what the new birth is and look at many different passages, and maybe we'll do that one day. But my intention for now is to focus on one chapter of Scripture, John chapter 3, and look at the words of Jesus himself on this central and crucial doctrine. Today we're planning to look at John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And then next week we'll pick up there and move on into the next part of the chapter. But this passage really is one big passage, and so I want to read starting back in chapter 2, verse 23, to get the context, to get a contrast to what Jesus does here in chapter 3. And I want us to read down on through verse 21 as we prepare to study our text this morning. So follow along with me, if you will, in John chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Speaking of Jesus, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you, don't, you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you earthly, tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And we'll stop our reading there. We will make reference back to chapter 2 sometimes throughout our study today, but our focus is on chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. This passage is all about salvation. It's all about the new birth, and specifically about where it comes from and who does all the work. One commentator summarized it this way, the whole point of this text is that something must happen to you that you do not participate in. There is no how to be born again. There are no steps to being born again. Nowhere does Jesus tell Nicodemus, do this, say this, pray this. The kingdom of salvation, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, heaven, is open only for those who abandon all self-effort. It is a work of God. And with this in mind, I want us in our time together this morning to consider from this text three perspectives. Three vantage points, if you will, of the new birth. I want us to consider, first of all, the state of the sinner. And second, the teaching of the Savior. And then finally, the work of the Spirit. We see, first of all, the state of the sinner in verses 1 through 3. This is where a man named Nicodemus introduces himself to Jesus under the cover of night to ask him a crucial question. And in the conversation that follows, Jesus reveals the true state of Nicodemus' heart and, the, and his true standing before God. I, I love it. Jesus doesn't really answer the questions and he doesn't really even follow the same line of thinking that Nicodemus comes to him with. Jesus, from the very beginning, directs the conversation to the need behind the question, to where he really stands. And so in verse 1, we read that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And that word now is a transitional word that can be translated, but it, it creates a contrast with what we read at the end of chapter 2. There, at the end of chapter 2, we read that there were many who supposedly believed in Jesus because they saw his miracles, but Jesus did not believe in them, so to speak. He didn't entrust himself to them. He didn't put any stock into their supposed profession because he knew their hearts. Then, just as now, we know that not all who claim the name of Jesus, not all who are interested in Jesus, truly know him or follow him. And Jesus knew that the belief of the crowd in chapter 2 
was not true saving faith, but it was a curiosity. It was a crowd mentality. They were amused by the works that they had seen him do and by the words that he so boldly proclaimed, but they were not changed by them. But then in contrast to that, we come into chapter three and we meet Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was also curious, but Jesus knew his heart. And Jesus knew what he wanted to do with him. And so Jesus doesn't walk away from Nicodemus. He has time for him. Because he knows that there is something going on in his heart because he's causing it, as we'll see throughout the chapter. Now, the rest of the verse tells us who Nicodemus was. This was not just some ordinary guy, and he wasn't just another person from the crowd that wanted to follow up with Jesus. We're told he was a man of the Pharisees. And we see the Pharisees all throughout the gospel, and the picture that is painted of them is not a positive one. They were often the target of Jesus' rebukes, harsh rebukes, firm and strong statements, whereas Jesus will spend great time and, and great patience on those who are truly wanting to know and those who are truly broken by their sin. And when he gives the gospel and he leads these people to faith, he's very patient and very understanding and very careful with them. When it came to the Pharisees, Jesus was in your face, not messing around, confronting these religious leaders. They were the elite. They were one of the elite groups of the Old Testament scholars among the Jews in that day. They were respected religious leaders in Israel. They were strict adherents to the law. They were highly devoted to their study and to their traditions and rituals. And that was a constant point of contention with Jesus because their religious activity, their ritualistic traditionalism had blinded them to the true teaching of the Old Testament. They had missed the whole message. And in their zeal to keep every detail of every law, these Pharisees actually created a buffer law around the law, and that buffer law was called tradition. And they did that so that they wouldn't encroach on the law itself. It sounds noble. It sounds worthy. But eventually in Israel's history, that buffer law called tradition also became law so that they held those things over the people, and they actually put hard and heavy weights on the shoulders of the people of Israel, and Jesus rebukes them for that. Their tradition had led them to become legalists and hypocrites. And as a result, they began measuring their spiritual lives and their standing with God according to their own performance, according to their own goodness, according to their own achievements and their own actions. And they had lost sight of the grace of God in salvation. They had lost sight of the true spirit of the law as the Lord had delivered it. And because of their misplaced zeal, because of their self-exalting legalism, Jesus declared this group of people to be hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, the blind leading the blind polished on the outside, but with no inward conversion or reality. And as a result, Jesus said, 
that they made themselves and those who followed them twice the sons of hell. Not only being lost, but now deceiving themselves into thinking they were okay with God when they were not. Nicodemus was one of those Pharisees. And this is the worldview that is engraved into his mind. And so his view of salvation and eternal life was colored by the traditions of the Pharisees. And that's why throughout this chapter, he's going to struggle to grasp what Jesus is teaching. He was an Old Testament scholar, yes, but he was entrenched in the Pharisees' theology. Now there's more. Because not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, but we also read that he was a ruler of the Jews. Those are not necessarily the same thing. This is a step beyond being a Pharisee. Throughout the Gospel of John, when, when John mentions the Jews, he's referring by and large to the Jewish religious leaders. He's not referring to the whole nation as a group. He's generally referring to the Jewish religious leaders. And the rulers of the Jews were not just the Pharisees, but there was a group known as the Sanhedrin. It's made up of about 70 people, priests, the high priest, former priests, some Pharisees. This is the governing authority in Jerusalem among the Jews. So Nicodemus then, by being a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, is a prominent man. He is elevated. He is respected in society. And that's why in verse 10, Jesus calls him the teacher in Israel. This man's a big deal among the Jews. So where does the teacher of Israel, the prominent theologian and teacher, the respected leader of Israel go when he has questions? Well, he goes to Jesus. In verse 2, we read, this man came to Jesus by night. We don't need to spend too much time reading into why he went by night. He's the teacher of Israel. The most likely explanation that he did this is twofold. One, to avoid interruption. And two, to avoid being seen by his colleagues getting a little too close with Jesus. But the most important thing, however, is not when he came, but that he came. Right? Don't criticize Nicodemus for coming at night. Praise God he came at all. And that's a necessary starting point. And when he gets to Jesus, notice he calls him rabbi. That's a title of respect. It's a, it's a recognition that there is something special about Jesus. It is one thing for his disciples to call him rabbi, but it's a much bigger thing for the teacher in Israel to call him rabbi and to even come in sort of a submissive posture to him, wanting to talk about these things. He refers to him then respectfully and somewhat as an equal, though he apparently does not yet realize how far superior Jesus actually is. He will eventually. Nicodemus then apparently does not share in the hostility of his colleagues toward Jesus. He is not a believer yet in this scene, but he is curious and he is sensitive and he is respectful, which is a good start. I believe Nicodemus becomes a believer, maybe as a result of this conversation, but we see him at the end of Jesus' life 
ministering to Jesus in his death. And so he says to him, still in verse 2, this is what he says when he comes at night, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He recognizes that Jesus, whoever he really is, has to be sent by God because no one else can do these things. And so he recognizes that there's something special about Jesus, though he's still trying to figure out what it is. And what he says here is not specifically a question. It's just an observation. Jesus doesn't even let him get to the question. But the sense of what Nicodemus says here is, is all going toward, who are you really? And that's a good question, isn't it? And the reason he asks this question is because he's heard the teaching and he specifically mentions the signs that Jesus had done. No one does these kinds of things unless they're from God. So who are you? He's familiar with the miracles. I suspect he had seen more than what John had recorded to this point. He also knows that these signs have to be from God. And so Nicodemus doesn't come making the accusation that others will soon make that this has to be the work of the devil. But Nicodemus has a more positive outlook on this. And he is curious about Jesus. And he wants to investigate further. So he comes to him at night with what I believe is a genuine question and genuine respectful thoughts. But Jesus in typical manner, is not interested in talking about his signs. The miracles that Jesus did throughout his life were never intended to be on their own. They were always intended to point to the teaching and the preaching of the gospel. And so Jesus doesn't want to talk about the signs because those had been the basis of superficial faith in chapter 2. Instead, Jesus goes directly and quickly to the heart of the question and to what Nicodemus really needs to hear. So in verse 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you. Now those words, truly, that's the word amen. And he says it a lot through here. And when we see that, that is Jesus giving his own divine assessment and confirmation to what he is about to say. When we listen to a preacher, we might say amen if we agree with the biblical nature of what he has just said, and we say it after the preacher has said it, right? Yeah, there we go. All right, good. That's how it works for us, but Jesus waits for no such commendation. Jesus says it at the beginning to signal to us what I'm about to say you need to hear, and it is authoritative. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Jesus knows the hearts of all men, as we saw in chapter 2. He knows the real question behind Nicodemus' statement here. He knows what is on his heart. He knows his real need, so he goes straight to the issue. I know why you're here. Let's get to the heart of the issue, Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I think behind this statement is, Nicodemus, whatever question you're about to ask me, you're missing the point because this is not you. But notice also that Jesus uses the third person here. He doesn't come out and attack Nicodemus. He's teaching him. And he's giving us universal principles. He's not going directly personal just yet. He'll do that in a few moments. 
but he's laying out the universal overarching truth, the truth that all of us need to understand. He begins with the objective. He begins with the doctrine. The universal truth about salvation that all of us need to hear. We need to understand the truth that Jesus just said, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus was a devoted and passionate religious person. He was intent on finding eternal life. That's why these men did what they did as Pharisees. This is why he had devoted his life to the study of the Old Testament. He is very much like the rich young ruler we find in Mark chapter 10. And he is very much like the Apostle Paul, whose religious credentials and testimony we read about in Philippians 3. Nicodemus had reached the pinnacle of worldly and, and religious accomplishment, and yet he realizes there's something missing. He had kept all the rules. He had done everything. The whole religious community around him was affirming, you are to be exalted because of your religious devotion. And yet he knows something is missing. He senses he still had not achieved entrance into the kingdom of God. Or if he had, something still wasn't quite adding up. And so he is searching for that one last piece to the puzzle. He wants to make sure he hasn't left anything out. And so if this Jesus is truly from God, he knows he needs to hear from him. And so Jesus' statement here tells us more about Nicodemus than Nicodemus' own words tell us about him. Because Jesus is answering the unasked question. Jesus is getting to the heart of the issue and to the most basic need. And he is, he is telling Nicodemus, that salvation is not a matter of personal performance. It is not a matter of personal achievement. It, is, it, it depends on being born again. Now, that would have been a shock to Nicodemus. In his quest for eternal life, like so many of his colleagues, Nicodemus was looking for what he could do. Again, that's why he was a Pharisee. But the image of being born again is completely contrary to any kind of work or self-effort by men, isn't it? That phrase could be translated, born from above. It is not a random phrase. It is not a flippant phrase. It is used on purpose. And he uses it intentionally to communicate the nature of salvation specifically that it is not something a person accomplishes for himself or herself. Being born is passive. At least for the one being born. No one decides to be born. No one causes or brings about his own conception or birth. It is interesting to note that nowhere in the Gospel of John and nowhere in this passage does Jesus say how to be born again. There is no how-to for this. And by using this imagery, Jesus tells Nicodemus that eternal life is not based on what he does. He's telling them that unless he lays down all self-effort and all confidence in his achievements, in his own goodness and morality, and in his own social standing, he will never make it into God's kingdom. 
You have to let go of those things. He doesn't say you have to lose them. But he's making the point, those things do not put you in the kingdom of God. And so all of this effort, Nicodemus, that you have done has given you a head full of knowledge and a world full of recognition, but it has not brought you into the kingdom. You cannot do that on your own. And this is how Jesus introduces Nicodemus and us to the doctrine of regeneration, to the reality of the new birth. This is a central and vital doctrine to the Christian faith. And one commentator defines it this way, the new birth or regeneration is the act by which God imparts eternal life to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, thus making them his children. Salvation is described in terms of birth, generating new life to emphasize the fact that it is only something God can do. And then that phrase, the kingdom of God, in verse 3, refers to that realm of salvation under the rule and the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Nicodemus and his colleagues thought that simply by being in the kingdom of Israel, descendants of Abraham, and keeping the law and the tradition, having a religious heritage in their minds, is what made them citizens of God's kingdom. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus here, you are dead wrong. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't matter who your daddy was, even if he was a preacher. It doesn't matter what church you grew up in. It doesn't matter how, how often you went there. It doesn't matter how many times you walked an aisle. None of that is the basis of entering into the kingdom of heaven. One commentator describes the implications of this, of Jesus' words for Nicodemus. This was staggering. All of his life, he had diligently observed the law and the rituals of Judaism. He had joined the ultra-religious Pharisees. He even became a member of the Sanhedrin. And now Jesus calls him to forsake all of that and start over. To abandon the entire system of works righteousness in which he had placed his hope. To realize that human effort was powerless to save. And that really speaks so much, doesn't it, to the religious reality of the world we live in today too? We live in the American South. We're going to church, or at least identifying with a church, is just a part of who we are. We hunt, we fish, we watch football, and we go to church. I would not presume to judge the motives of every churchgoer in the Bible Belt. And this does not mean that we're all a bunch of hypocrites. And I would not presume to condemn anyone for hunting, fishing, or watching, or playing football. But I do fear that because of the cultural trappings of Christianity where we live, it is an easy tendency for us to approach our Christian life or our spiritual lives much like Nicodemus did thinking we are right with God because we've done the right stuff. Trying to be right with God by doing the right things. The right things are important. 
and we ought to do the right stuff. But we have to understand that re religious performance does not bring us in to the kingdom of God. And these first three verses are crucial because they teach us the state of the sinner. And beloved, that's our state. We are the sinners. And it describes salvation as new birth. That means before being born again, we are dead. We are not alive. That also means that anything good that we might do in that state is still a dead work. It has no connection whatsoever to our spiritual lives. We are, as Scripture teaches, helpless and hopeless haters of God in our sin. That's what we read in Ephesians 2 this morning. Every part of our being is touched by the effects of sin and its consequences. No, we are not all as bad as we could be. But we are all bad to the core. In theological terms, we call that total depravity or total inability. And contrary to what many want to teach today, we must recognize our total depravity. We must recognize our utter poverty of spirit and we must recognize and understand that our hope rests entirely in someone else for salvation. And so Jesus is telling us that in order to be saved, we must be reborn, recreated, regenerated. We must be given a new nature, a new life, a new heart. And that is not something we can do by our own will, but it is a work that only God can do. Well, as I've said, and as we would all imagine, that comes as quite a shock to Nicodemus because that flies in the face of everything he has devoted his life to to this point, his entire religious system and worldview. And unfortunately, I think it flies in the face of the worldview and religious systems of many today as well. But we need to understand there simply is no basis for any claim that man is basically good and that he naturally seeks after God. And we have got to get away from this idea that Jesus is just a piece that we've attached onto an already clean life. This is a revolutionary thought to Nicodemus because this is not just a new set of facts. This is not just the last piece to the puzzle. This is a complete recalibration of his thinking. And so he's going to struggle with it for a while. And many do today as well. And that's why Jesus is so patient. But while this might sound negative at first, and people get offended here, because it sounds negative, like we're putting people down. And, and, but if you think about it, in truth, this is really good news, isn't it? I mean, he, he's telling the prominent teacher of Israel, the Pharisee of the Pharisees before Paul was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. That there's nothing on this earth you can do. And in spite of all of your achievements, you have not achieved the kingdom of God. Now, friends, tell me, if that's true of them, how, much true, how true is it of us? If the preeminent religious teacher of any society, with all his spiritual credentials, cannot enter the kingdom of God, then none of us have any hope funny that's why jesus says unless your righteousness exceeds that of the pharisees 
And his point was, you can't do that. Your righteousness has to come from somewhere else. But this is where the news gets really good. Because Jesus doesn't just say, well, if you're not good enough, no hope for you. See you later. No, this is where grace comes in. This is where Christ comes in. Thank God that salvation does not in any way depend on our accomplishments. Because if it did, not only would you never achieve it, you wouldn't even want to. And rest assured, as one preacher has so famously said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. This is where we praise God in humble adoration for His grace and His mercy. Salvation is impossible by human effort, but it is entirely possible. And it is available to us because it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is what Jesus is leading us to see in this text. That is what he is doing in the mind of Nicodemus here. So as we move into the next section of our text, verses 4 through 7, we've seen the state of the sinner. Now let's consider the teaching of the Savior. In verse 4, we read, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And some people have used this as a criticism of Nicodemus for being really dumb. This is the prominent teacher of Israel. He's an Old Testament scholar. And teachers understand something that you can teach, that you teach best by using object lessons illustrations help people visualize born again is not just a truth it's an illustration it's a an object lesson and and nicodemus it's a ludicrous statement well can an adult go back into his mother's womb and be born again nobody thinks that but nicodemus as a teacher understood that jesus is using this imagery to teach a reality and so he plays along what are you talking about jesus because i know that what you're saying physically can't happen. So what are you getting at? He plays along, and then Jesus teaches him. With Nicodemus' statement, it's as if he is saying, Jesus, that is impossible. And that's exactly right. That's what Jesus is leading him to understand. By your effort, you cannot make this happen. He gets that much. But it's not fully computing yet. So he asks his questions. He keeps going. He has spent his whole life working for salvation. And now, for the first time, he is being introduced to grace and his desperate need for it. He's struggling a little bit. But really, he should have known it all along. Here's, here's a good Bible study lesson for us. The gospel is the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New. Old Testament believers were saved in the same way New Testament believers are saved. And it is not an, this artificial division of the God of wrath in the Old Testament and the God of grace in the New Testament. That is completely wrong. 
Grace is all over the, New, the Old Testament. Just like wrath is all over the New. Because grace is all throughout Scripture. So Nicodemus should have known this. After all, he was the eminent teacher in Israel. And Jesus, in verse 10, actually rebukes him for this, for not knowing. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? He was an, an Old Testament scholar, but he, and he had spent his life studying the Hebrew Scriptures. But what Jesus is teaching him here is all over the Old Testament. And he didn't see it because of his tradition. So Jesus doesn't allow him an excuse, but he does give him some help. And Jesus is so patient, isn't he? He's straightforward, but he's so patient with Nicodemus and with us. He rebukes him for not understanding this already, but he does give him some hints and helps along the way. And so in verse 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Again, still talking in general terms, laying out the doctrinal truth for him to understand. There's a lot of speculation about that phrase, being born of water and the Spirit. Some have said it refers to physical birth and spiritual birth. Maybe there's a hint of that there, but I'm not sure that's really what Jesus is getting at. Because I don't think Nicodemus would have understood physical birth that way. Others have said that it refers to baptism. But again, I, I don't know that Nicodemus would have understood the concept of Christian baptism that way yet. But remember what Jesus is trying to do here. Remember what he is doing in Nicodemus' mind. He is pointing him to what he should have known from the Old Testament already. And these terms, water and spirit, are not contrasting words but are working together to restate what Jesus has just said about being born again. When the Old Testament uses these terms, they refer to spiritual renewal and cleansing. For instance, a key passage that might have come to Nicodemus' mind when Jesus said this is Ezekiel chapter 36, where God promises to cleanse Israel and to give them his spirit. And then in Ezekiel 37, where we see the valley of dry bones. God indeed does that. He breathes new life into those dead skeletons. And there are other passages. Ezekiel 11, Jeremiah 24, Jeremiah 31, Psalm 51, and more, where God speaks of cleansing his people and sending them his, his spirit. This is where Nicodemus' mind should have gone when Jesus spoke of being born of water and the spirit. He is talking about inward cleansing and purity giving his people a new heart and changing their affections. You see that? It's not a change of clothing. It's not a change of system. It's a complete regeneration. And in all of it, there is an emphasis on the fact that God is the one who initiates and accomplishes and completes this work. And then in verse 6, Jesus gives another hint that continues to direct Nicodemus' thinking and to clarify his point. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, all that flesh can produce is flesh. You don't get spirit from flesh. With this, Jesus is sort of introducing the doctrine of sin to Nicodemus here. Nicodemus did not understand the depravity of his own heart. He did not understand his total inability and unwillingness 
regarding salvation. But again, it's all over the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 6, when God is getting ready to destroy the earth, we see the declaration that man's problem is in the heart. In Job 14 and 15 and 25, the question is asked, who can make the heart of man clean? And the answer is that man cannot, only God can. In Psalm 51, David affirms that he was conceived and born in sin. In Isaiah 64, 6, declares that all our righteous works are as filthy rags before God. Jeremiah declares that the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. And in Romans 3, the Apostle Paul quotes several Old Testament passages to define the sinfulness of man's heart and to show that there is none righteous and none who seeks after God on their own. And so in summary, the Old Testament clearly teaches that salvation is an act of God by His sovereign grace alone, and it has to be that way because man is utterly, totally sinful and unable to save himself. Man's problem is a deep-rooted, utter depravity of heart that makes us completely unable to approach God or even to want to. And so the fact that Nicodemus even wants to have this conversation with Jesus is evidence that the Lord is already calling him. But we are completely unable to save ourselves. We need a complete spiritual rebirth, a complete new life, a total spiritual transformation. We need to be washed. We need to be purified. We need to be cleansed by God himself. We need a new heart. We need a new spirit. We need the Holy Spirit because we cannot do any of this ourselves. You getting the point yet? Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he is looking for salvation in all of the wrong places, and he is depending on the wrong things. He is undercutting his entire religious system and worldview, and he is showing him that the true path to eternal life is completely dependent on God's sovereign grace alone, apart from any effort of his own. And then in verse 7, Jesus speaks directly to Nicodemus, and he appeals to him based on these truths. He says, Do not marvel that I said to, to you, you must be born again. You must be born again. He is denouncing all religion apart from the gospel of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is calling Nicodemus to be done with all his self-effort and to look to Christ alone in faith alone, by His grace alone. This is the call of the gospel. If you would see the kingdom of God, if you would see eternal life, you will not find it in your own efforts. You must cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You must abandon your self-effort. You must stop holding on to whatever achievements you have in this world or whatever greatness you perceive, you must not even look to the people around you and think that you're just better than they are by comparison. None of that means a thing. You must look to Christ. So moving on now into verses 8 and 9. Jesus gives another analogy, this time shifting from the inability of man to the power and the work of God. We've seen the state of the sinner and the teaching of the Savior, and now we see 
finally, the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit. Back in verse 6, Jesus said, That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. In other words, salvation is a work only the Spirit of God can do. Only the Spirit can change a person's sinful heart. Otherwise, man could never and he would never choose to be saved. Salvation is a work of God through His Spirit alone from beginning to end. That's what we read in Ephesians today. And now in verse 8, we see another analogy regarding the Spirit. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's a little play on words, because the Greek word for wind and spirit are the same. But the point is this. What can you do to control the wind? Nothing. All you can do is see its effects. The wind is invisible. It is uncontrollable. And it is irresistible. It cannot be summoned. It cannot be dismissed at will. It is not subject to our desires. There is no how-to book on getting or controlling the wind. There is and this is the way it is with the Spirit of God. Jesus is, again, making the point of salvation that he has made all along, that this is a work of God alone, not man's work. He says in John 5, verse 21, that the Spirit gives life to whomever he will, and that's that. There is nothing we can do to manipulate the Spirit of God into accepting anything we have to offer. His salvation is driven by his will alone. Nicodemus then still can't seem to wrap his mind around all of this. And so in verse 9, he cries out, how can these things be? And that's a good question. And we all ought to ask that question. If I can do nothing to earn my own salvation, then what hope do I possibly have? How can I be saved? And Jesus' answer is essentially, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. There's a lot here for us to process when we consider what salvation truly is. And for those who have come from a background of man-centered religion and work-centered ministry, this can be difficult. If we're not careful, we can misrepresent passages like this one by concluding or accusing it of teaching a sort of fatalistic view of salvation, as if God's sovereignty means we have no, no responsibility at all. But that is not what Jesus teaches here. So often, though, we want to reduce salvation and evangelism and the Christian life to a process or a checklist. I want to be able to mark off on paper that I've done everything possible to be right with God. Right? When I'm evangelizing, when I'm telling somebody how, how they can be saved and I'm trying to give them the gospel, I want to give them some sort of markable checklist so that I can see when they've actually crossed that line into faith. And like Nicodemus, we tend to measure ourselves by our own performance. And often our reference point is the performance of other people, not the Word of God. Though we don't always say it that way, 
it's easy to fall into that trap. This passage presents to us the biblical truth that our salvation and standing before God are a work of God himself alone, period, end of story. And if we would know eternal life, if we would see Jesus and see the kingdom of God, we must understand that there, that, that salvation is found in something else, something other than us and what we can produce. That salvation is found in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, who was born in human flesh and lived a perfect life on our behalf, who died a sinner's death in our place, who was risen three days later from the grave and ascended to God the Father who sits on his right hand interceding for his people. So that the apostles in the book of Acts would preach messages like this one. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What name? The name of Jesus. Brothers, what shall we do? Repent and believe the gospel. Stop thinking that because of whatever you've accomplished, you've earned a standing before God. You may have earned a standing before men, but that doesn't get you into heaven. Salvation is found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, as we close, let me bring this down to three simple summary applications. First of all, if you are not a Christian, that is, if your faith is not in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, from, uh, apart from all other efforts, I urge you today to abandon your self-effort and call on the name of Christ. While there is nothing you can do to earn a standing before God, there is nothing you can do to save yourself, Scripture does call you to respond to the good news of the gospel, to respond in repentance and belief. You need to recognize that God owns you, that you answer to him. But because of sin, you are by nature separated from God. You are actually at war with him, and he is at war with you. But Jesus Christ died on the cross to take on himself the wrath that God would pour out on you so that by faith you could be reconciled to him. And if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Second application. Christians, find your assurance of salvation in your present faith in Christ, not in past actions. You okay with that? You might be able to remember the time and the place and the moment where you came to repentance and faith in Christ. And that is wonderful if you do. But do not ever anchor your faith in an outward action that you performed. Look to Christ. Don't trust the feebleness of your own performance. Consider where you are right now and what your trust is in right now. As Christians, works are important. But not for gaining acceptance with God not for proving ourselves to him. Works are simply the outflow of a new life he has already created in us. 
And so our assurance of salvation is not dependent on our works, but on our standing before God in Christ alone. And finally, Christians, third application, Christians, in your efforts to reach the lost, recognize that it takes time for people to get this and be patient. It is a rare instance that an unbeliever believes this after one conversation. I'm not entirely convinced even Nicodemus did, and Jesus was the one giving him the gospel. Maybe he did. By the end of the gospel of John, yes, he did. But I suspect he had to sleep on this and think about it for a while. I suspect he might have even needed to watch the life of Jesus a little bit longer to see him prove the things that he had said. It takes a long time. Sometimes it takes years or even a lifetime. So that person that you are reaching out to, that person that you are trying to spend time with and give them the gospel, be patient. Don't write them off as a lost cause simply because they've ignored you for the last 15 years. Pray for them. Pray for God to You can't make them saved any more than they can. But pray that God would draw them. And keep being patient. Urge a response, but do not push them to make a decision. Take your time. Let the Holy Spirit do His work. Because He always does. Let's pray.